have you ever heard the accusation against churches like ours, so evangelical, reformed churches, uh, that our church, at churches like us, uh, we have too much emphasis on the Bible and not on God. Uh, you hear it said that the Trinity in some churches is Father, Son and Holy Bible, that it's all about the head and not about the heart or the spirit. Uh, have you ever heard those sorts of accusations? I wonder if there's anything to them. Is it possible to love the Bible and to not love God? Or what about the opposite? Is it possible to love God and not the Bible? If you're a Christian, if if you're a follower of Jesus, what should your response be to what in 1 Thessalonians 2 is called the Word of God? What place should the Word of God have in a Christian church? Uh, In those few sentences we just heard from 1 Thessalonians, we hear two ways to respond to God's word, two very different responses to God's word. It's either received or rejected. That's what happened when the gospel uh, was first proclaimed in Thessalonica. Uh, We'll also see in what Paul wrote in this letter, we're also going to see it in, in Acts chapter 17, the historical record of the gospel first coming to Thessalonica, some received, some rejected. And not much has changed, has it? The same thing happens today. And so what Paul says, what God says to the church in Thessalonica, it's a message we need to hear as God's church today. Now, when the the gospel was first proclaimed in Thessalonica, you could say it got some mixed reviews. Some gave it five stars. They thought it was the best thing ever. Others, even, even saying they gave it a one star, would probably be too much. So I'm going to put it up on the screen. Have a listen to what happened, Acts 17. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish custom, sorry, a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob and started a riot in the city. Uh, Some people hear the message of Jesus and they're persuaded. Uh, They hear the message of Jesus that he died for our sin and rose to eternal life. Uh, They heard this message of forgiveness of sin through the death of Jesus and they love this offer of free forgiveness to whoever believes that Jew and Gentile are now united in the one people of God. That's how some people responded to the message. Others hated it. And they hated the message of Jesus so much, they stirred up a violent mob and conspired to have Christians thrown in jail. Who who did this? Who is this second group? According to Acts 17, who stirred up the mob? It was the Jewish leaders. It was members of the Jewish synagogue. And as they did this, they were repeating a pattern Paul had seen over and over again throughout the world, starting in Judea. People who studied the scriptures heard the message of Jesus, rejected it and attacked those who believe. This was the pattern. So have a look in your Bible. So we're going to start at verse 14, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people 
the same thing those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us, that's Paul and Silas and and the other uh, uh, Christian missionaries, drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to everyone in their efforts to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. Now, the point Paul's making, the reason Paul is writing about this, the reason he's writing this letter is to encourage believers. Imagine you're a brand new believer and people who read the same Bible as you, who claim to worship the same God as you, they are furious with you. They want to stop you. They want to attack you. And they want to prevent anyone else hearing about Jesus. Imagine you're a brand new believer in Thessalonica. You might start thinking, well, they've got a point. They've been reading the same scriptures longer than than me. I'm just a, a baby Christian. And these are the leaders of the synagogue. And they don't believe Jesus is God's promised king. Maybe, Maybe I'm wrong. Paul's point is, no. Those who hate the message of Jesus, they displease God. Actually, they hate all humanity because, from a human perspective, they prevent people being saved. So these verses are written to encourage young believers. Persecution is not proof that you're wrong. In fact, it's proof God has saved you and he will punish those who will believe, uh, who persecute. Sorry, those who persecute is those he'll punish. He's not going to punish those who believe, he'll punish those who persecute. And what was happening in Thessalonica, it's what Paul faced from some in Judea, and it's the same situation Jesus faced in his lifetime. In John 5, we read of Jesus healing a man who was unable to walk. If you know the story, it's the man who was waiting at the pool of Bethesda, um, yeah, Bethesda, I mean Bethesda. It was the Sabbath day, the day of rest, and Jesus heals the man with a word. This infuriates the Jewish leaders, they interrogate the healed man, they interrogate Jesus, and they get more than they bargained. Not only does Jesus make some of his clearest statements about his divine nature, his equality with the Father, but he rebukes the Jewish leaders. They think they're Bible people, but they're not, because they refuse to trust in Jesus. They think they're students of Moses, the great prophet of God, but they're not because they refuse to believe the scriptures, the written word of God, and they refuse to listen to Jesus, the spoken, his spoken words of God. So have a listen to Jesus. I'll put it up on the screen, John 5. This is what Jesus is saying to the Jewish leaders. You study the scriptures. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have eternal, to have life. And Jesus continues, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me, but since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? What's Jesus saying? You cannot be a Bible person if you're not a Jesus person. If you believe the Bible, you believe Jesus. And the source of persecution for these earliest Christians are people who think they're God's people. They think they believe the Bible, but they reject Jesus and attack those who receive him. 
Now, in our, in our context, I struggle to think of experiences we might come across where someone claims to love the God of the Bible when he or she attacks or persecutes Christians. In our context, opposition is more likely to come from someone who sees themselves as a, a secularist or an atheist. Though there are some Christians who find themselves opposed to, find themselves under attack from people who on paper at least claim to be God's people. The other week, the soon-to-be Anglican Archbishop of Southern Queensland, Jeremy Greaves, uh, Graves, I think you say his last name, Jeremy Graves, uh, he was interviewed on ABC Radio. Uh, The interviewer asked him this question, who is Jesus to you? What an easy ball. You know, you'd expect the the soon-to-be spiritual leader of Anglicans throughout Queensland, you'd expect him to hit this for a six. This was his answer. Uh, Jesus is not just a good example of a a good person who lived 2,000 years ago, but he does give us the best understanding of the nature of God and his care for the the marginalised and the outsider, his message of love and hope and forgiveness, really give us an indication of what Christians might understand God to be like. Oh dear. Now I don't know Bishop Graves, I don't know what he's like personally, but I know the action of his predecessor uh, led to some Bible-believing, gospel-proclaiming, Jesus-loving ministers and whole churches to leave the diocese and join a new Anglican structure, the, Di- the Diocese of the Southern Cross. Now, now hear me clearly, the bishop is not going to stir up a violent mob. It's not going to be like Thessalonica, but if, he, if this is his understanding of Jesus, this is not the word of God the Thessalonians received. How would they have answered the question, who is Jesus? Well, he's God's Messiah who suffered and rose from the dead. He's not the best indication of what God might be like. He's the exact representation of the being of God. If someone who's meant to be overseeing God's people is wrong on this, doesn't teach this truth, dare I say he rejects this truth, who does he have more in common with? The believers in Thessalonica or their oppressors? I'm not telling this story to make us feel smug. We need to watch ourselves, don't we? Seeing error in someone else and then feeling smug or superior, that is a sin. We must repent of smugness. We also must pray for our brothers and sisters in Anglican churches. Whether they decide to remain under Bishop Graves' uh, Graves oversight and try to change things from inside, or whether they decide to leave, we need to pray for them, don't we? That God would give them strength to continually receive his word as it really is, the word of God. We need to offer encouragement and support to stand firm, and then we need to ask them to pray for us too. They've got lots to teach us as they stand firm for the Lord Jesus. My point is, you can be religious. You can wear a purple shirt but reject the word of God. And you might think you're being gentle and loving, but to use Paul's words, this displeases God and is hostile to everyone. Proclaiming a false message about Jesus displeases God and is hostile to humanity. That's the sad side of this situation, isn't it? But the passage we read today started with thankfulness. 
for those who receive God's word as it really is. Verse 13, and we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. And now in this sentence, we read the term word of God twice. And so far, I've been a little bit sloppy. I've been using uh, the term word of God to talk about the Bible and the message of Jesus, the gospel. So is that right? Is the word of God the Bible? Is it the gospel? Is it both? Well, in, in verse 13, word of God primarily refers to the gospel. But I've been swapping and changing between the two because you cannot separate the gospel from the Bible. You cannot separate the scriptures from Jesus and his gospel. And that's what we heard from John 5 and Acts 17. But we'll go back, let's have a listen to those again and, and take a closer look. I'll put John 5:39 back up on the screen. What was the problem with the Jewish leaders? They study the scriptures, that's a really good thing. They looked at the scriptures for eternal life. That's a good thing. But they refused to come to Jesus, which is bizarre because the scriptures testify about Jesus. The main topic of the Bible is Christ and his gospel. And we see this in how Paul brings the gospel to Thessalonica. I'll put Acts 17 up on the screen again. On three Sabbath days, as Jews and God-fearing Greeks gathered in the synagogue, as they gathered to pray and study the scriptures, Paul got up and from the scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, from the scriptures he talked about Jesus. He showed that the main message of the scriptures is God's promise, God's promise that the Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead. And then he said, hey, you know Jesus, that's him. He is God's Messiah. How did Paul proclaim the gospel of Jesus? Through the scriptures. Because the scriptures testify to Jesus. So is the word of God the gospel? That Jesus is the Messiah who rose from the dead? Yes. Is the word of God the whole Bible? Because it's all God breathed, 2 Timothy 3.16, and it all testifies to Jesus, John 5.40. Well, yes, as well. So yes, in in 1 Thessalonians, word of God is specifically the gospel of Jesus, but it's the gospel that the whole Bible is about. You you can't have one without the other. The two are intertwined. You, You can't say you're a gospel believer if you don't pay attention to the Bible. And you also can't say you're a Bible believer if you don't see it's all about Jesus. So to Bishop Graves, whose gospel isn't the life, death and resurrection of Jesus whose gospel isn't Jesus' death being for us, as Peter Bloomfield excellently preached last week. If the gospel you preach isn't about Jesus being the great I am, as Mal preached two weeks ago, then it's not the word of God. But if the message is God's word, a message from heaven to us, if it's God's word, we receive it, we treasure it, we believe what it says. We believe the bad news that makes the good news so good. We believe we are sinners. We don't just need a a teacher of love, hope and forgiveness. No, we need God to forgive us. We need God to show us love. Even though we are deserving of judgment, we need God to give us hope. And our only hope is through acknowledging 
this truth that Jesus, who is the promised Messiah, who is God himself in the flesh, that just as God said his Messiah would suffer for our sins, that he would die the death we deserve to die, and he would be raised so his people could be justified, declared right and just before God, we believe that's true. And we rest and rely on Christ and his once-for-all sacrifice for sin. That's how we receive God's word. So if this is true, if God's word is at work in those who believe, what does this call us to be and to do? Well, first up, you can't separate the gospel from the Bible, which means we've got to read the Bible with the gospel at the centre or with gospel glasses on as we read the Bible. It is possible to read the Bible but miss Jesus. It happened in Thessalonica and Judea with the Jewish persecutors. It happens today. The Bible isn't mainly a book of rules or examples of the the heroes of the faith. It's not about giving us good examples to live by. The Bible's not primarily written to show us how to have a happy family or how to vote in a referendum. It might inform all those things. But that's not the main thing. The main thing isn't how to run a Christian school or how to make good financial decisions. It's the word of God. It's about Jesus. And so as we read the Bible, the first question we ask, whichever part of the Bible we're reading, the first question we ask is, how does this reveal the good news of Jesus? How does this help me to see Jesus as the crucified, risen and ruling saviour? This is why we're doing God's big picture In growth groups this term, it's going to show us how the Bible is one story, which despite its diversity, the Bible has one subject, Jesus Christ, and it has one story, God's plan to save the world through Jesus. I'm really looking forward to this growth group series. I think it's going to be really encouraging for us. For some of us, it's going to be mind-blowing. I remember when I was first shown how the whole Bible fits together, It's not just a a bunch of random old stories, but one story, and it's all about Jesus. It blew my mind, and it opened up the whole Bible to me. All of a sudden, I could read any part of the Bible because it was all about Jesus. So first thing, if God's God's word is at work in us, we need to understand the Bible as the book about Jesus. It's Jesus' book. And secondly, if God's word is really God's word, If God is speaking to us through the Bible, because the whole Bible is about the gospel, we want to be reading it, don't we? We want to be a church saturated in the Bible, continually listening to God's word. That's why we have two significant chunks of the Bible at least read each Sunday. In fact, there's more than our two Bible reasons that we almost always begin and end our gathering with God's word. We want God's word to set the scene. We also want God's word to be ringing in our ears as we head out to morning tea, as we continue gathering over morning tea. But we also have two uh, significant Bible readings. Generally, it's one from the Old Testament and one from the New, because if God is speaking, we want to be listening. We gather as God's people to hear God speak to us. I've visited some churches, and during their time together, there's no Bible reading. Yes, the preacher might reference a few verses, but there's no reading from God's word. The irony is most of those churches think they're Bible churches. They'd call themselves evangelical. 
But during their gathering, during their services, there's actually less reading from the Bible than in any service that Bishop Greaves, Graves would be involved in because of the, the prayer book tradition that Anglicans have from the Reformation. There's loads of Bible reading almost always in their services. The sermon then might say, don't believe what you've just heard, but at least they're hearing it. It's also why in growth groups we spend significant time reading the Bible. In our prayer meetings, I think almost every time we started by reading a chunk of a psalm because we want God's word to shape how we pray. If, God's, if, if the gospel is God's word, we, we believe it. If the Bible is God's word, we listen to it. Now, as I said at the start, there is that accusation though, isn't it? That churches like ours can be all about the Bible but miss Jesus. And we need to be aware of that possibility that we could be reading the Bible, but it's actually not at work within us. Maybe we read the Bible as history, but not to meet Jesus. There's that risk that we can hear the word, but not do it, not be changed by receiving Christ in his word. Maybe the word isn't actually strengthening us to persevere in hardship and trial as God brings it to life by his spirit. That is a possibility. And we do need to hear the critique and wonder and, and think, is that us? And we need to pray that it not be us. The word of God has been proclaimed to us, so let's receive it as it is. Not mere human words, but God's word to us. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you for speaking to us. That the gospel and the scriptures aren't some human story, but are your word. Help us receive your word as it really is, to believe it, to treasure it, to hold fast to it. Strengthen us to hold fast to your truth, even through times of suffering. May we find it a light to our path and breath into life. May we be a people who dig deep into your word, not as an end in itself, but that by your spirit we might see Jesus, know Jesus and love Jesus. Amen.